Welcome to Created Terrain, a production of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, whose mission is to educate the public and policymakers on biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm Cal Beisner, president of the Cornwall Alliance, and today's topic is Dangerous Exaggeration About Climate Change. On March 20, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report warning that global warming since the late 1800s is likely to surpass a targeted limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius, or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, by the early 2030s. UN and IPCC officials say the report shows that we've reached a critical moment in history and that how we respond to it will, quote, reverberate around the world for hundreds, even thousands of years, unquote. Let me focus here on how the Washington Post handled the news. In an article titled, World is on Brink of Catastrophic Warming, UN Climate Change Report Says, and with a tagline saying, a dangerous climate threshold is near, but it does not mean we are doomed if swift action is taken. WAPO climate reporter Sarah Kaplan exemplified the failure of most journalists to think carefully about any news related to climate change. Let's begin with her reporting that the IPCC's report warns that global warming could surpass 1.5 degrees Celsius by the early 2030s, or within the next 10 years. So far, global average surface temperature has risen about 1 degree Celsius since the late 1800s. That leaves about half a degree to go. What are the odds that we'll reach that by 2033? Cornwall Alliance senior fellow Dr. Roy W. Spencer and his colleague Dr. John R. Christie at the University of Alabama, Huntsville, manage NASA's Satellite Global Temperature Monitoring System, the most reliable source of global temperature data. Their latest report shows that global average temperature has risen an average of 0.13 degrees Celsius per decade for the last 44 years. So, how much is it likely to rise by 2033? Another 0.13 degrees Celsius, resulting in a total increase of 1.13 degrees Celsius since the late 1800s. That leaves another 37 hundredths of a degree, or... 30 years worth of warming to reach the 1.5 degree target. And that's assuming that carbon dioxide is the sole or at least the primary cause of the warming. But it's likely that a fair amount of past warming has been natural, and that a fair amount of future warming will be too. But there's another problem with the expectation that rising atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration will cause another half degree of warming in the next decade. It is the assumption that the next, say, 30 parts per million of carbon dioxide added to the atmosphere will have equal warming effect as the last, say, 30 parts per million. That, however, we know is wrong. Why? Because carbon dioxide absorbs heat, and so slows the curling of the lower atmosphere, only in certain wavelengths of the infrared spectrum— and as the total amount of carbon dioxide increases, there's less and less heat in those wavelengths that hasn't already been absorbed. Physicists refer to this as the wavelengths getting saturated. The result is that carbon dioxide's warming effect is logarithmic, not linear, let alone exponential. The first 50 parts per million absorb much more heat than the next 50, which absorb more than the following 50, and so on as the total rises— or to put it in reverse order, 
The last 50 we added absorbed less than the previous 50, which absorbed less than the 50 before that, which absorbed less than the 50 before it, and so on. What does this mean? It means that warming driven by each additional component of carbon dioxide, or any other so-called greenhouse gas, diminishes as total atmospheric concentration rises. And that, in turn, means that the warming effect of the carbon dioxide we add to the atmosphere, roughly 28 parts per million assuming present trends, from now to 2033 will be less than that of the last 28 parts per million, which was less than that of the prior 28, which was less than that of the prior 28, and so on. So, instead of expecting the rate of carbon dioxide-driven warming to triple, as the prediction that we'll pass 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2033 would require, we should expect it to decline. Just for good measure, Kaplan reports that the IPCC also says that, quote, unless nations adopt new environmental policies and follow through on the ones already in place, global average temperatures could warm by 3.2 degrees Celsius, 5.8 degrees Fahrenheit, by the end of the century, unquote. Now, there are 7.7 decades left in this century. At 0.13 degree per decade, global average temperature would rise by 1.001 degree, not 3.2 degrees. To warm by 3.2 degrees by the end of the century would require a decadal warming rate over three times faster than the last 44 years. And yet, as we've already seen, it's more likely for the warming to slow than for it to accelerate. A well-informed, thoughtful reporter determined to report facts and not propaganda should have thought about that. Ms. Kaplan didn't. Now let's go on to a few other high points of her article. She says the new report finds that the world will surpass, quote, its most ambitious climate target, unquote, 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial times, by the early 2030s. Why is that so newsworthy? If that's the most ambitious target, what other targets are there? And why choose the most ambitious instead of one of those? For decades, the UN and national governments negotiating policy about global warming figured a target of 2 degrees would be reasonable. Just in the last five years or so has 1.5 degrees become the favored target. But frankly, there's no good rationale for it. As close as Kaplan gets to giving a rationale is to report, beyond that threshold, quote, scientists have found climate disasters will become so extreme that people will not be able to adapt. Heat waves, famines, and infectious disease could claim millions of additional lives by century's end, unquote. But there are three reasons to reject that. First, let me just point out some journalistic sleight of hand. Saying scientists have found means next to nothing about how credible the claim is. For all kinds of claims, yes, some scientists have found, but others haven't, and some have found the opposite. Scientists have found means nothing to real scientists. Real scientists want to see the evidence, not the show of hands. As Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard Feynman famously taught, the key to science is that if observation contradicts theory, the theory's wrong, no matter how smart you are or how many people agree with you. And there's another sleight of hand in that phrase, scientists have found. That word found suggests that what is found is the result of hard evidence and reasonable inference. But in many cases, it is a predetermined outcome. 
A few years ago, a computer climate modeler shook the modeling world when he said publicly what all the modelers have known all, all along, but no one had been brave enough to say that global climate models are not validated by comparing their output with real-world observations, but by comparing the output of one model with the output of other models. And, he explained, a model is deemed good if its output falls within the, quote, acceptable range, unquote. And what is the acceptable range? Well, it's the range predetermined by climate modelers. If we understand that, then suddenly scientists have found, when applied to claims about the effects of climate change, loses all its punch. That's two bits of sleight of hand in just three words. Remarkable. Now for the second reason to reject the claim that warming beyond 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial times will make, quote, climate disasters so extreme that people will not be able to adapt. Contrary to claims driven by computer climate models that are designed to yield predetermined conclusions, real-world observations, the hard empirical data that is supposed to be the hallmark of real science, reveal that neither the frequency nor the intensity of extreme weather events has increased during the last 10, 20, 30, 50, or even 100 years, even as the planet has warmed. Indeed, some have diminished. And now, the third reason we shouldn't believe continued warming like what we've had over the last century or so will make, quote, climate disasters so extreme that people will not be able to adapt. History tells us otherwise. Not to mention the fact that cold snaps, which kill on average 20 times as many people per day as heat waves, would diminish with warming, offsetting any increased threats from the heat waves. The fact is that, driven by economic growth, mankind's ability to protect himself from extreme weather events has mushroomed. Added wealth enables people to protect themselves against heat waves, cold snaps, storms, floods, droughts, wildfires, earthquakes, tsunamis, even volcanoes. Early warning systems allow people to prepare in advance. Sturdy buildings withstand high winds and shaking ground. Dams, flood control channels, aqueducts, and irrigation systems protect against floods and droughts. Advanced firefighting systems protect against wildfires and structural fires. Electric or gas heat protects against extreme cold, while air conditioning protects against extreme heat. In fact, as a result, death rates from extreme weather events have fallen by over 98% in the last century. There is no reason to think our ability to protect ourselves against extreme weather events will not continue to improve in coming decades or generations. Unless, by demanding replacement of nuclear and hydrocarbon, so-called fossil fuels, with wind, solar, and other green but really dirty energy sources— we rob ourselves of that ability by depriving ourselves of the abundant, affordable, reliable energy that makes it possible. So there's really no justification for choosing 1.5 degrees as the target. Kaplan could have asked UN officials about that. She didn't. Then there's the claim farther along in Kaplan's article that the changes brought on by carbon dioxide, quote, have caused irrevocable damage to communities and ecosystems, like dwindling fish populations, less productive farms, multiplying infectious diseases, and weather disasters that are escalating to unheard-of extremes. We've already rebutted that last point. What about the others? Whether fish populations are dwindling is one question. How significant that might be is another. 
Our world in data reports that, quote, global production of fish and seafood has quadrupled over the past 50 years. What's striking, the report adds, is that global wild fish catch has not increased since the early 1990s and instead remained relatively constant at around 90 to 95 million tons per year. Fish farming, on the other hand, is growing very rapidly. From 1960 until 2015, it has increased 50-fold to over 100 million tons per year. Are farms becoming less productive? Our World in Data reports that global average wheat production per acre rose 219% from 1961 to 2020, rice by 147%, corn by 196%, soybeans 147%, potatoes by 78%, beans by 60%, and so on for crop after crop. How about multiplying infectious diseases? The evidence that global warming will increase the spread of infectious diseases is thin and doubtful. But the evidence is the solid that, whether the diseases are more or less common, death rates from them are declining. Once more, we go to Our World in Data, which reports that the death rate from infectious diseases fell by 55% from 1990 to 2019. COVID-19 would have put an upward blip on that trend for a few years, but there's no reason to think it will return to its level in 1990, much less to levels before the days of antibiotics and other modern medical treatments. In closing, let me change focus from Kaplan's report in the Washington Post to the IPCC report on which it's based. Except, um, hmm, it isn't based on the IPCC report. It can't be because the report hasn't been released yet. Not, that is, if what's in mind is the AR6 synthesis report, the basis of all these claims. As one can see at the report's site, all that have been released so far are a summary for policymakers, 36-page, a, quote, longer report, unquote, 85 pages, some figures or graphs for the summary for policymakers, some headline statements, a press release of four pages, and a presentation that is a deck of 16 PowerPoint slides. Now, people unfamiliar with how the IPCC works might think, well, but the summary for policymakers should be enough for most of us. It summarizes, after all, what's in the full report. Not so fast. Unlike the AR6 synthesis report, which will probably run over a thousand pages, the summary for policymakers is written primarily by government-appointed bureaucrats with few scientists contributing. Every line in it gets debated by those bureaucrats, each of whom is committed to furthering his or her government's policy goals. And, wonder of wonders, once they've finalized the summary for policymakers, they send it to the scientists, who must then ensure that nothing in the main report contradicts it, not by alerting the bureaucrats that they've made a mistake, but by changing the scientific report to conform to the summary. That, of course, is exactly backward of what ought to happen, but it's the official way the IPCC functions. Which supports a conclusion that Cornwall Alliance Director of Research and Education Dr. David Legates, longtime professor of climatology, has made again and again. Climate change is about politics. It isn't about the science. It never has been. Thank you again for listening. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. 
Tell your friends about it and share it on your social media. You can follow us also at at Cornwall Stewards on Twitter or on our Facebook and YouTube channels. Remember, the Cornwall Alliance is a nonprofit ministry supported by tax-deductible donations. We'd be grateful if you'd support us. You can give online at cornwallalliance.org slash donate. Until next time, may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as you seek, with the Cornwall Alliance, to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth, to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors, thus fulfilling the two great commandments to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs>